Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Holly Mulcahy is an in-demand American violin soloist, concertmaster of the Wichita Symphony and Chattanooga Symphony and Opera, a thought leader in the symphonic music field and nonprofit world, and a true classical music entrepreneur. She has collaborated with many exciting living composers like Jennifer Higdon, Philip Glass, and Hollywood composer George Stanley Clinton on The Rose of Sonora, a violin concerto and epic Western adventure story inspired by love and revenge. Holly founded Arts Capacity, which brings live interactive performances and art to prisons, is the author of Neoclassical, and is constantly brainstorming, advocating, and acting to make the orchestra more accessible to all. Holly, welcome to the show today, and I would love to just start out by hearing about how you as a young person and any formative experiences you had that gave you the stamina and inspiration to be such an incredible advocate for symphonic music both on and off the stage. Thank you for having me. Um, as a young person, I think I was lucky because I didn't come from a musical family. I had normal parents who had normal jobs. It, and I mean normal, it's like they're not musicians. So I approached music through movies. I approached music through video games and outdoor pops concerts and just very accessible kind of things like that. And when I started going to youth orchestra, we would experience the Colorado Symphony, and I was starting to see some of the, the gatekeeping and some of the, you know, who's invited to feel welcome and who's invited not to feel welcome. So that kind of was an early seed for me, just observations. And as I've been able to be in more uh, present position and more visible position, I thought, I, I really need to use this platform while I can. And kick open all the doors and open all the gates and see if we can allow access of art for all. 
So that's been from those experiences. You compared concert going to the somewhat inadequate feeling maybe of ordering wine. And you talk about this uh, company called Yellowtail Wine. It's in Napa Valley and they analyzed like regular people's taste instead of the wine connoisseurs. And they developed a wine that was created backwards from the consumer. Can you talk about how that can apply to orchestras or symphonic music? Yeah, I think um, the wine industry is, and the experience of taking in wine is such a great analogy for the arts because with music especially, once you consume it, it's gone. Just like once you drink your wine, it's gone. But there's also the snobbery associated with fine wines and fine music. And if you don't know, then you must, you know, not be welcome or not be, you know, smart enough or have enough class. And that, that to me is kind of horrifying, but there are, there's a massive movement in the wine industry to make it accessible, to welcome people in where they are, feel comfortable, knowledgeable with what they are, give them tools with where they are and help them build to that fine wine that may be $100 a bottle down the road. But starting with a $20 bottle of wine and feeling really good about knowing why they like it. I think that we can do that in this industry, this music industry we have. We just need to listen to our audience more. If they're saying, we don't like this, listen to them and change and find what they do like and say, okay, well, you like this kind of tone? You like this kind of sound structure? Here's the perfect composer for you. So you just kind of like find the taste profiles and flavor profiles and really make it a, a collaborative effort. And I think that's what art is. It's collaboration and it's communication. And with a good wine, just like a good piece of music, it leaves you talking about it with people, which is what art is best for, in my opinion. You uh, talked about playing the Jennifer Higdon Violin Concerto. And I find this a lot as well is that there's this fear, I think, for a lot of the people who program that if we don't play, you know, Beethoven 5, Beethoven 7, Tchaikovsky 4, um, that we're going to alienate people or we're not going to make the concert kind of exciting enough. And, and you talked about how newcomers to the symphonic world actually enjoyed the Jennifer Higdon concerto and had more things to say about that than other works. I also find this a lot that people will get more excited, especially people who may not experience the symphony that much on the newer works than they might uh, for something that was written, you know, two or 300 years ago. Can you talk about that from like a programming aspect and, and any, any kind of involvement you've had in that or wins or uh, possible defeats in that regard? Absolutely. The programming of an orchestra concert is much the same as a dinner, a fine dinner. When you go out to eat, you've got your appetizer, you've, you've got your salad course or soup course, and you've got your main course and you balance it with dessert, maybe a cup of coffee. So orchestras tend to do the opening overture. Maybe that's your salad course. And then the main concerto kind of thing, that's the next course. And then you lure people in with the steak or the halibut special, whatever. And that's all fine. But if that salad course or that soup, maybe it's a roasted poblano soup that is not what you're looking forward to, but oh my God, it's so good. And that steak, it was good. It was, you know, steak tasted like a steak. It's like saying that Tchaikovsky is good. It sounded like Tchaikovsky, but oh my God, the Higdon, it just, and that happens so frequently in concerts where people will come because they recognize Beethoven, Brahms, Mahler, and the first half of the concert typically is where orchestras will throw on the new composer, the, the stuff that they 
you know, they're trying to advocate for, or they know the composer and, or the, the flavor profile fits in with the theme. And nine times out of 10, people are talking about that performance over the steak. We did Michael Doherty's uh, cello concerto a couple of years ago with Wichita Symphony and Zul Bailey soloing. And I forget what was on the second half, but everybody was talking about that cello concerto. Wow. And it was, it was amazing. And, and like the Higdon concerto, when I did that with Chattanooga Symphony a number of years ago, I think on the second half, it was a Tchaikovsky symphony, I think. And everybody was talking about the Higdon. I also peppered it beforehand with my own kind of like created a cocktail. I had a bartender listen to the concerto. I forced him to listen to the whole thing. I said, create a cocktail. Don't just make it a, you know, jazzed up Cosmo. He came up with the most amazing metaphor because he, he had like uh, the foam on the top of this cocktail was representative of the harmonics and the opening. And there was a certain like kind of spiciness. And so that allowed a way for people to understand through a drinkable metaphor. We also did some school presentations. We brought the concerto into schools beforehand, the recording, and had kids draw pictures and create stories. And I published those on my blog. And what that did was that informed people that kids survived just fine listening to contemporary music. And then there was a curiosity because, well, this kid saw something really amazing. I wonder what I'll see. So it was a very invitational way to include people in a living composer's work. To be honest, at the time, the executive director then was hesitant to program the piece. She was like, why don't you do the Brooke concerto? Oh, Brooke is really dandy. Everybody does Brooke. And I love the concerto. But Jennifer's family is from the Chattanooga area. And I just really wanted to play the concerto. And I said, you know, it's dangerous. Let's be dangerous. Let's, let's try this. Um, and after we got the comments back, the feedback back, everybody was like, that was amazing. That was our first concert experience. You know, they were curious to hear more after that just allow people to own that curiosity. Could you talk about the idea of like an overture, concerto, intermission, symphony, that kind of plot, you know, what your thoughts are about that? Like when you see that as a concert master or a concert goer um, on a program, you know, in terms of just upending the traditional classical model, should we try a program with two concertos? Should we do more programs with all new music because people seem to love it so much? Um, should we do Beethoven's Wellington's Victory, a piece that nobody knows by famous composers? I mean, what are your thoughts on that traditional concert model? Well, I think that there's a lot to take in and calculate. There's a lot of risk, and it depends on the individual organization whether they can afford the risk. I think it's a good time to take risks right now, try some stuff. But as far as like the traditional overture, concerto, big piece at the end, that has worked. It's been really tired though for a long time. I think now trying, like you said, two concertos could be fun. What I personally want to do is have like a blind tasting. Like you like pick the most obscure Tchaikovsky piece. Or actually there's a lot of Sibelius pieces that are really to us, to our American ears, obscure. We don't we don't program them ever. Yeah. yeah. Program a Sibelius, program a Quinn Mason. Program them, don't give the names, don't give the gender, don't give any information and let people decide. You know, They won't know if, if this was written yesterday, last year, 10 years ago, 100 years ago. 
and let them decide. And that, that's exactly what that wine company did was they just they gave blind tastings with flavor notes. I want to do that. Do you know if that's ever been done, like from a, symphonic, like a larger symphony orchestra? I don't know if it's been done, but I think if it's marketed correctly and inclusive and perhaps maybe partially funded with um, maybe a company can help gamify it, you know, have people set odds on like, you know, maybe the piece is titled something really cool. Does that title sound like it'll be more epic than something else that's, you know, titled differently and just have this kind of a, a guess in advance, but make it inclusive. And I think if you're advertising the experience and the inclusivity of it, I think it would do well, especially after a you know, this pandemic, people are just so hungry to have live arts. I don't think they're like going, I'm really hungry for live arts, but only if it's Dvorak 7. I don't think they're doing that. founded Arts Capacity, which is a nonprofit that goes into prisons. And the really cool thing about your performances is they're highly interactive. You know, you're not just taking a Mozart string quintet or, or something in there. You know, you're engaging living composers, living artists, and you're improvising. You're taking feedback from your audience who are the prisoners there. And some of the feedback, you know, on your website, some quotes like, Hearing from the composers expound on music they wrote. The interaction between Holly and the audience. I love that our opinions matter in this. The violin recital gives me peace. It helps me cope with everyday life. And someone else said, music goes past the mind and straight to the heart. It's kind of like a microcosm of, of why we as a general population experience the arts. But you can imagine in the kind of setting of the prison where you go into play, it would be so much more amplified. Can you talk about that experience and what that's you know meant for you and the people you've served in that regard and maybe how other organizations could mimic that? The whole thing started um, with just a simple prison performance. It was just me and a pianist. And I'm just an interactive person. I always love feedback. I want to know, how did you like that? Tell me why you liked it. What didn't you like? And so very much, that's just who I am by nature. 
So during that first recital, we asked, you know, prisoners, what did you think of that? And they were so forthcoming with their thoughts, stories, ideas, feelings. And then they, we also brought in surveys so they could write down things if they were shy or didn't want to share. Because, you know, prison is a very vulnerable place to share feelings. You don't naturally do that. But in this process, my first recital, I played a lot of Bach. Um, I also paired each Bach with a living composer, um, Mark Mellitz, Jennifer Higdon, Jim Stevenson. And what I'd found was the prisoners put more weight and more thought into the living composers. And I didn't ask for this. I assumed they would gravitate towards the Bach because... I don't know. That's what my pub, you know, what, when I go to concerts, people want to hear the dead white guys. And that's what I was, that's my information. But I had this other concert program to play in at the university of Wyoming and I needed to do a dry run. So it was kind of like, I'm just going to play this for you. <laughs> and turned out we learned they put more value into these composers, the living ones than Bach. Somehow it touched them more deeply they also put great value in knowing that I would Facebook these composers after the recital to let them know what the prisoners thought of their music. And for prisoners to have an opinion that matters, that's huge because when you go in, everything's taken from you, including your humanity. And so that began a recital series. And more and more, we'd add living composers or we'd add composers who would come in and include a creative process where we would invite the prisoners to finish a piece, you know, give your thoughts on the start of it, and this composer is going to finish it with your thoughts. Or we'd improvise pieces based off of what the prisoners wanted to hear. So it's a very collaborative, inclusive experience. And we also were able to bring in a few community members to watch this. And so having people, just normal people, leave their cell phones behind, walk behind prison walls, and sit down and experience a concert with no distractions and listen to music through the ears of somebody who is thirsty for any kind of art, meaningful art, changes that person's perspective. So when they go to the symphony next, they are forever changed with how they process music and how they process art and how they need it. And so by all of these um, performances and experiences, we discovered this interactive thing really matters. This matters not just to prisoners, but everybody. And so that's kind of been why I advocate for asking audiences their opinion, including audiences in a lot of the experience part of the concerts. Can you talk about any any kind of revelations that you've had, you know, for yourself or in your work as an arts leader and artistic leader um, that have grown out of the pandemic? I think I was already on the, the track with the nonprofit with arts capacity of, you know, discovering more purposes and different ways to appreciate music, use it to, to reach places. During the pandemic, I can't sit still. You know, I have to keep creating. And it forced an idea that we started with Wichita Symphony, which was our Wednesday wellness program. I had a task force of a psychiatrist, a music therapist, an emergency room doctor who's on our board, myself and our music director, Daniel Heggie. And we came up with a weekly program to do what we do basically with arts capacity, which is give people a place to put their feelings, to, to exercise their humanity, to just address 
whatever needs to be addressed. And we didn't just do relaxation techniques. We didn't just do this music's going to make you feel good. We went to some really hardcore topics. Like the psychiatrist was, was very poignant. She's like, this time, this time with this pandemic, people are feeling feelings they've never felt before. They don't know how to address them, how to express themselves. They can't identify them. It's so foreign. And it just hit me like a brick, like, oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, what is rage, um, anxiety, uh, fear, and helplessness all mixed together? That's what a lot of people are feeling, and there's no name for it. However, you can address that by listening to um, this symphony by Prokofiev, this symphony by Stravinsky, and using the tools to help identify feelings. And with that, through the music therapist, we discussed, she didn't discover it. It was discovered for us this uh, method called the ISO principle, where you take where you're feeling and match it with a similar piece of music. So if you're feeling like really depressed, you, you don't need to be listening to a Mozart happy tune. It's not the right feeling. It doesn't match where you are. And it's not going to make you snap out of your depression. Instead, Daniel and I had picked a number of pieces that might match a depressive feeling or might match a, an anxiety feeling. And then the idea with the ISO principle is to ratchet that up or ratchet it down, depending on which negative feeling you want to get away from and just slowly increase the music's livelihood or decrease the anxiety, just ratcheting it away. And you know well enough, the repertoire is so thick with um, options. So we were just in the classical repertoire, but this music therapy principle can encompass many genres as it should be. But the takeaway from this is just a new way to bring the uh, the idea of music to people, how they can listen. If they're in a concert, can it make you more of an empathetic listener? I mean, when we talked before about the, the overture, the concerto, the, the symphony, they're all going to be different feelings. Can that make you more like um, yoga for your ears and soul so you can understand you know, sorrow and understand um, great joy and understand intensity and just can that make you more flexible by by listening to a, a concert in that in that format? Maybe I'm certainly going to invite people to approach it that way now that I know this principle. That That's cool. So so just logistically how it works, do you um, meet with people over Zoom and you recommend recordings based on that or, or is it a live performance in, a, in an interactive environment we did this these are like little between 10 and 40 minute they're on youtube you can go to the symphony's website and just just try them out it was just one big experiment but it was really what we discovered where people really resonated with what they saw they wanted to understand different ways of appreciating music my goal when i started this was to give people tools to listen to music when they returned back to the hall, whether it's a, a therapy or a psychiatric kind of experience, the psychology of it. We want to just give people just different ways because as you know, there's a lot of passive listening and a lot of cell phone checking and to give people a tool to really focus so deeply like the prisoners do without the distraction is kind of the goal from this.
lot of tools in terms of listeners, you know, for audience members, for orchestra musicians, for conductors and administrators, all essentially with the purpose of being more welcoming and more inclusive. But also I love it because it's very practical too, right? You know, because we would love for every age kid to be all over the audience. You know, we, we, I would love for babies to be in, in a classical musical concert, but you know, there are some restrictions and rules that we have to make just so everybody can have the experience that we're advertising for them. Can you talk about just a few of the different things, like your thoughts on uh, kids at the symphony, like what the appropriate age is, your thoughts on clapping, you know, j- just in general, your thoughts on speaking about music from the stage as a conductor or a musician or a composer, program notes. Could you just kind of, I, I know you've written about a bunch about this stuff and people can check out your blog, of course, at Neoclassical, but I'm just curious um, if you can kind of highlight anything that you've learned uh, maybe recently or, or that has changed over the pandemic? Yeah, kids, I think they should be invited because they're going to be our future ticket buyers and supporters and patrons. But they're, the orchestras in general in our country don't give enough ammunition for the parents to like really bring a, a child in and feel like they're not going to be the center of attention you know, in a, in a bad way. I wrote a blog about that and it's priming kids getting them excited about it. You just start with little increments, like just recordings, and then always reward them with something sweet, a cookie or something, and talk about the Scheherazade movement you just listened to. And and then maybe next week, listen to two movements of the Grand Canyon Suite and share a cookie and talk about that. And of course, adding in living composers as a definite bonus, but then getting the kid excited to go to the concert, you know, but also planning ahead, like, is it smart to have the kid in the middle of a row or is it smart to have the kid at easy exit point in case something, you know, the kid might get bored, which they, they do. They, they often will get bored, but uh, building the attention span of the kid and including them into a conversation about how they liked it. It's, it's what anybody wants. They want to express how they like something. But if you just say, listen to this because it's good for you, it's going to fall on deaf ears. Also having the plan of where to sit. I mean, just a checklist for parents. You know, if your kid starts to act up, you know, sit in this aisle and these seats are the best if you need to make an exit or whatever. If you've got to go to the bathroom in the middle of a performance and just have the the little toolbox for parents. As far as clapping, um, I love this conversation because I know I always can sway people. There's a large group of people out there who say, oh, that you shouldn't clap in between movements. Is it getting smaller, though? You think it's getting smaller because it may be because of your advocacy? Well, I, I'd love to think that. that would be, <laughs> it'd be great. I'm on your side, by the way. I'm, I'm totally on your side. <laughs> Thank you. I think I've got a pretty good argument about it. When I hear clapping at what we traditionally call inappropriate moments, I think, good, that person's new. That person's new to the concert experience. And they should never be shamed because that's just horrible. I think conductors over 60 are more apt to turn around and, you know, shake their finger like, Shh, you know, I think that's horrible. It's, it's horrible. Yeah. I think it's perfectly okay to clap in places that it's just a release of emotion. But one of our favorite examples is Tchaikovsky 6. What do you do with that? And I think this is where you can really include an audience into the experience. Don't just say, don't clap. Include them into the tension 
you want to clap after that third movement, try not to, or go ahead, release it. And then we're going to start that, that fourth movement, but have a plan for the conductor and make it inclusive, or perhaps even do a quick hand vote at the concert right before the, the sixth symphony starts. How many of you want to release the tension after that third movement, you know, and if it's your first time, you don't know, you're like, Ooh, cool. This, this could be cool. Um, and how many people don't want to clap because that tension is so awesome. You know, that silence, it's just going to give your, you know, the hairs in your arms standing up, but including them in that process, I think, because they're the ones buying the tickets. It's their experience. It's not ours, really. I mean, it's a job. It's their experience. You want them to want to come back. One of the things that you said was, and I, I actually found this interesting that you analyzed it, as you said, conductors, don't keep your arms raised after a, a big triumphant ending. And it reminded me of a time when we were doing the Berlioz Symphonie Fantastique, two, two concerts. And so the first concert, and you know, it's in five movements. And I mean, I, I did do an explanation to the audience before, but that's, you know, 50 minutes later at the end of the fifth movement, the first concert, there was a little bit of a pause, like it wasn't and one of the violists told me, you know, you just got to make make sure you you tell the audience, you you show the audience that it's over. And, and I I said, okay, okay, yeah, and I did. And so the second performance, yes, there was like thunderous applause after. And I didn't even think about what I did, but I think what I did is the first concert. I kind of left my arms up for some reason, um, and and I thought that was it's it's just those little you know, little things that can make a big impact on the audience. Um, I mean, the conductor, you're conducting the orchestra, but you're also conducting the audience, or I'm going to rephrase it, inviting the audience to listen this way or react that way. It's, it's a lot of power for a conductor. <laughs> um, yeah. And that's one of the things that I do as a concert master is I'll bow things in a particular way because it's just, it's visually more definitive as an end, you know, like I'll, I'll end on an up bow because it looks really exuberant. It, it looks like it's the, the end. And to have a whole section do that, it helps the whole situation, you know, become more cacophonous with the applause. Yeah. And so for those of listening who might not know what that means, ending on an up bow would mean your arm would kind of go up in the air. So it would, it would kind of end in the spirit, the triumphant and exuberant spirit of the music. And then as far as talking from the podium, conductors, I've played for one conductor who talked for 25 minutes before we played our first overture note. That's a, that's the length of a, of a Haydn symphony right there. <laughs> no kidding. And it was just like, you know, the orchestra tuned and then we're all getting cold and the audience is just, you can see them checking their phones. And I think it's good to talk, but it's also good to make it invitational. Like, you know, we want to know what you think. We want to, or we invite you to share your thoughts. We would like to hear your thoughts. Uh, if you feel that the program notes don't take you on the journey that that program note suggests, what does it do for you? Let us know. And that kind of can give the torch to the audience. Conductors very often will like to give history lessons and that's boring for most people. There's a few nerds out in the audience, which is great. We love our music nerds. Music nerds know more than, than I do about music. They usually know more than the conductors, so. Right, yeah. And there's a place for that. You can do the, the pre-concert talks or you can go hang out afterwards and, and like geek out about that second movement of the Mahler symphony and the juxtaposition of the themes and blah, blah, blah. 
But when you're talking to a bank of people, you've got to generalize it, keep it concise, keep it small, and give people something to listen for or a, a way they can have feedback afterwards because then that completes the loop of we just played a piece for you. Yeah, you, you clapped, but then you're in your cars going home. Send us an email. Did you like it? What, what images came up? You know, and just complete that loop. to ask you about Rose of Sonora. This is a collaboration uh, that you are performing on and you helped create by the composer George Stanley Clinton. He's the Hollywood composer of films like Austin Powers, Mortal Kombat, and a couple of the Cheech and Chong movies. Can you talk about how that came about? It's a really cool five-part story, and I have really enjoyed not only you know learning about the story and learning about the creation of it, but just listening and to and studying the music, I think it creates this really epic kind of drama that I think is is such a great piece to, to be performed for audiences today because people are always looking to Hollywood or to video game music as as kind of a foot into the the symphonic music door. Can you speak a little bit about how that came about and your experiences with that over the past few years? Right. The um, about actually four years ago, two weeks ago. Um, was the anniversary of putting on Facebook just this random, very vulnerable status, which I said, if there was a Western-style, movie soundtrack-style violin concerto, I would be all over it. And then I hit enter, and I thought, oh, gosh, what have I done? This is going to advertise that I'm not a serious musician, that I like soundtracks, that I like Western soundtracks. You know, I thought, my career's over, whatever, who cares? I'm sitting in the Grand Tetons looking at this great Western scenery, having grown up with the Western scenery. It, it, I don't know. I just like the music. And so little by little, there were some pretty big names who said that would be cool. And uh, a lot of likes, which I thought, oh, okay, I'm not crazy. And then I thought, you know, I really want this. So I contacted George, who I know, and I said, hey, would you like to write a violin concerto in the style of a Western movie soundtrack? And he said, yes. So I was like, cool. Cause that whole, you know, that soundscape of like the, the good, the bad, the ugly, once a time, once upon a time in the West, uh, a lot of the Westerns have this like epic, like open wide country driving feeling and um, dramatic and, and just, I just loved it. And I would have been happy with that. 
but when I flew to LA and, and we started to work on the concerto, George says, this is the Rose of Sonora and it's in five scenes and it's got a story. And I thought, wow, this is cool. So he started to tell me the story of a female outlaw, which is great because while I like Western music, Western film scores, I never liked the Western because it was always so male dominated and the women were like, hey, can I get you some coffee? And they were so weak. And here was this powerful woman, this outlaw that George created. And it kind of, it's a modern day Scheherazade, essentially. It's a strong woman who uh, takes care of herself. And so George, being a film composer, wrote the story so he could have scenes to write music to. And he made it interactive by writing those little scene descriptions, which appear on a screen above the orchestra for the performance. So before the first movement, audiences will read about how Rose rides in after dusk to a, a town jail to release her lover and subdues the guard and both her and Jed right away with the gold. And then we start the concerto with the first movement. And what it does is it includes the audience in the story. They're included in the, the event. And very much, we just talked about applause, almost 100% of the performances so far, there's been somebody who's been like, woo, after the first movement, you know, where they're just really excited. They start clapping because it just feels good. And I love our, our friendship and our collaboration on this because it, it checks off all the boxes of creating a piece of art, of including the audience, of making it accessible, of telling a story, and it's just fun. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Yeah, and it's it's written for orchestra and chorus and men's chorus. Men's chorus, yeah. Give that kind of Western feeling. And the thing I love about it is it's something that could be on like the next, you know, Western that Quentin Tarantino releases or something like that. Right. But you're actually telling the story. I mean, there's, there is no film. I mean, the whole story's there, you know, there's a death included and in how it's portrayed. It's, it couldn't be more beautiful and relevant. Can you talk about what it's like to actually be telling the story? Um, because a lot of times as a concerto soloist, you're, you're telling a story, but it's, you kind of have to make it up because there is no story with it. Can you talk about what it's like to actually be delivering the drama while at the same time playing, you know, this virtuosic music? Well, I've got a weird answer for you. Well, it's not a weird answer. I've got a, an unusual answer in that we've performed this six times. And after each performance, some of them have been double performances. People will say the first movement, that middle section reminded me of fill in the blank, that, that third movement, it reminded me of, or I heard a train or the horses. I imagined it as this gray, horse. And so each time somebody shares something, the next performance, it fills it out even more. And I own it even more. And I, I, I become more invested in the story, which I think personally, I feel better about playing when I've got more to give like that. And I look forward to hearing people's impressions because it's just added so much color and so much depth to my interpretation.
conductorless concert and you talk about uh, leading from the concert master's position on Haydn Symphony Number no. 31, the horn signal. Can you talk about just leading that symphony from a concert master's standpoint and any of the ways to incorporate, you know, Haydn's musical humor as a, as an artistic leader? I think um, as a concert master leading something like this, it's it's a balancing of egos and balancing of control. Um, there's certainly the um, Orpheus chamber orchestra model where there's no conductor. And what this orchestra does is they prepare a concert over a number of weeks or you know number of rehearsals. That's a little bit more than the typical symphonic four rehearsals concert or three rehearsals concert, depending on things. So I think having a really firm knowledge of the history of the piece, the score, um, and having a defined kind of set of expectations for the colleagues and then treating colleagues, you know, like saying, if there's any discussion or if there's any concern about tempos, let's talk about it at break. But here right now, this is the tempo. We're just giving really definitive, this is the way it's going to be, but not sound like this is the way it's going to be. You want to make it sound inclusive, but um, be able to back it up with reasons why. It's difficult to play without a conductor sometimes, but some pieces like this require a lot of eye contact and a lot of I know, more motion in some ways. That particular concert, we did standing, and that helped a lot because it frees people up. It, it, it was just more fun to play standing. Everybody was a little bit like, oh, I don't want to do that. But we did it, and they were like, that was great. That was so much fun. But it also helps the visual communication skills uh, of, of keeping the, the uh, ensemble locked. Also, I think before that concert, I gave the audience a few things to listen for. Of course, the, the bass solo and some of the jokes. You want people to be included in the jokes, but also just make Haydn human. Like, you know, some guy burned his house down that sucks. <laughs> and um, the, the fight, I think one of his, his musicians poked somebody else's eye out. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I studied this, the score, I talked with Nick McGeegan. Oh, wow. That's amazing. But Nick McGeegan was like, you've got to understand the, the, the kooks that were in his orchestra to be able to, <laughs> to properly appreciate this. And fortunately, my colleagues for that concert were very nice. Nobody was poking eyes out, but I certainly made a joke saying, well, you know, during this particular performance, there was an oboe player without an eye because the trumpet player, I can't remember the exact players, but poked it out. And we promised not to give you that kind of drama, you know, but just include them in the levity of it because it is an ancient piece of music in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And, and I always find that's really, that's always a little controversial in Haydn symphonies because they're not like Beethoven symphonies where everybody knows everything, you know, I was I was introduced to the Haydn Symphony number no. sixty. I don't know if you're familiar with it, the distracted gentleman, Il Distrato. And the really crazy thing about it, well, it's in six movements, but after the fifth movement, Haydn has a note in the score for the violins to tune their instrument down from G, their their G strings down to F. Have you heard of this? I have not. Yeah. So I hadn't heard of it either, but it was for Anna Klein's uh, a piece called Sound and Fury, where she takes from Haydn's distrato and she takes from Shakespeare's Macbeth. 
So I was introduced to this Haydn symphony with this incredible gag <laughs> for the orchestra, for, for the audience. I mean, they're in, in the sixth movement, the violins have to tune it back. Like it's written in, tune it back over the course of these eight bars. Right. So, so yeah, I'm just constantly amazed at the humor and, and the, the humanity with which Haydn worked and lived. But, but I do find that interesting in terms of tempo. It's like, how do you decide tempo? Because so many different tempos can work and, at least with this last round, you know, I tried it a couple different ways and saw what worked. What was your experience in kind of finalizing that, the tempos of the different four movements? I think the, the tempo was, uh, I discussed it with Nick McGeegan. He suggested, since you're not doing it with conductor, I recommend this, I recommend that. But that also gave me kind of solid ground saying, we're going to do these tempos. Nick McGeegan recommended them and people like, oh, okay, you know, so it just helps having that kind of. That's something somebody told me when I had my first orchestra job. Somebody gave me some advice. They said, well, just say that's traditional, you know, because as a young conductor, everybody's yeah. questioning you. Maybe as an old conductor, too. But but yeah, so I think that's that's always a good way to go. Just Right. <laughs> well, Holly, it's been such a great experience chatting with you and getting to know uh, your life on and off the stage. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. And I just wish you the best and encourage you to keep on doing all the amazing things you're doing for the sake of symphonic music and orchestras everywhere. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you for joining us on One Symphony and thanks to Holly Mulcahy for sharing her passions, performances, and insights. George S. Clinton's Rose of Sonora was performed by Holly Mulcahy. You can learn more about Holly's advocacy, leadership, and performances at www.hollymulcahy.com and at insidethearts.com slash neoclassical and her nonprofit artscapacity.org. You can always find more info at onesymphony.org, including a virtual tip jar if you'd like to lend your support. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music